Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer, I'm a Senior Content Manager here at Sports Pro and as always I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Bassam, our News Editor. Now Tom, before we get into today's topics, I have to ask, how is it that the one week I'm not on the podcast you end up discussing the juiciest story to come out of sports business for a decade? Um, well, yeah, we thought probably we needed to kind of make up for the fact that we didn't have our regular host by tackling the most interesting subject. And maybe, I don't know, the feedback I've got is that perhaps your days could be numbered as uh, as, on, see, as as the as the anchor of this uh, this famous ship you see when you started that i thought you were being complimentary by saying you needed an extra juicy story to make up for my lack of insight and entertainment but then you finished it by saying i'm basically getting the sack anyway so tune in next week to see if i've been replaced and I'm if my notice period has begun <laughs> yeah as chat gpt fills in uh, for me next week now tom I know uh, you're particularly excited this week because I think today marks your last day in the office before you head down uh, head down to the West Country to Glastonbury Festival. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, by the time this podcast actually emerges from the depths of the internet, I will be in the depths of Somerset, trying to forget pretty much everything, really. I'm very much looking forward to seeing Elton John on Sunday, which just like makes me feel really old because I feel like that's the sort of thing my mum might say. But We'll roll with it. We'll, we'll roll, roll with, with it. it. Yeah, we move. Yeah, it's in the genes. I hear he's he's producing a brand new show just for just for Glastonbury. You're a lucky boy. Well, I hope it's just got all the old classics in it. I don't want to, I don't want any new songs really. Uh, although that one with Britney was entertaining, I guess. Yeah, you see, that also sounds like a backhanded compliment, Tom. To who? To Elton. Uh, well, no, I've only got complimentary things to say about Elton. And if he ever wants to come and talk about his ownership of, I don't know, Watford on the podcast, then we'd be delighted to have him. Well, tune in next week as Elton John hosts the Sports Pro <laughs> podcast. <laughs> anyway, from one legend of the music industry to a legend of the sports industry, it's almost as if we planned this. Let's talk about one of the big stories to have come out of the sports business landscape over the last few days, which is Michael Jordan is mm. selling his stake in the Hornets. Well, Michael Jordan is making a lot of money. Obviously, one of the greatest NBA players of all time. He acquired his stake in the Hornets, his majority stake in the Hornets, but I think it was around 270 or 275 million back in 2010. And really got in like at the ground floor when it came to buying um, NBA teams because they are now multi-billion dollar businesses and the valuation that's been reported for this sale to a couple of I'll, I'll be honest like private equity guys that i have not the most background on i mean they're sort of straight out of central casting when it comes to uh u.s private equity uh <laughs> types but i mean he's selling for what espn reports is a deal valued around three billion so i mean 275 to three billion he's doing all right and that's before you even um get into his other investments including his own brand which is backed by the biggest sportswear company in the world so it's a good time to be michael jordan it always has been but it's a particularly good time to be michael <laughs> it's an even jordan. better time to be michael jordan right now <laughs> the valuation's an interesting one as well right i know sportico's recent rankings had their valuation at about 1.8 billion so it's quite heavily surpassing that figure what do you think underpins that I want you to be a private equity analyst here, Tom, for a few minutes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't go to Harvard Business School. I think those valuations are based purely on the numbers, right? They're based on 
taking all the assets that a team has and putting them all together and, and figuring it out. But like as we've seen with Chelsea, as we're seeing currently with Manchester United, there's also like a a prestige factor. A, a, a vanity figure. A vanity figure, a prestige factor that goes into these deals. Also the fact that you're buying into to something that's gonna probably in all likelihood increase in value. So you only had to look at Michael Jordan's record to see that that's the case. Particularly with the new rights valuation coming up as well. Yeah, exactly. You've got the yeah, you've got the new media rights deals coming up in the next couple of years. There's going to be league expansion, which in theory actually could dilute the value of your team a little bit, but in reality will probably mean an increase in games, an increase in reach for the league as well if it goes into more markets. So if it's a good time to be Michael Jordan, it's also probably a good time to be getting into the NBA. Because Jordan's kept a minority stake in the franchise as well, yes. right? So there's clearly some faith and some belief that that valuation is going to still rise further. Yeah, that is true. The minutiae of the deal haven't really been reported all that much, or at least if they have, I haven't seen them. So my bad. But yeah, he's keeping a stake in the business. That says that he still thinks there's value in it, but also a good time for him to sell. The interesting things I do know about Gabe Plotkin and Rick Schnall uh, are, is that one of them lost a lot of money in the GameStop saga, which was a hot industry subject for a month or so, a couple of years ago. For those not familiar with subreddit trends and uh, the, the financial markets moving as a result of those subreddit <laughs> trends, can you fill us in on the GameStop yeah, saga? Yeah, so Clockton's Melvin Capital, which is a private legacy firm, they'd acquired a share in the Hornets in 2019, but at some point after that, basically around the sort of height of lockdown where board investors were sat at home and Reddit found that there was this computer games store chain that had basically a lot of capital and bet against its success by the likes of Gabe Plotkin. And they sort of keep on pumping up the stock value and devalue his short position, which meant that he actually needed rescue funding from Steve Cohen, the owner of the New York Mets in MLB. That's sort of probably the most notable thing about the two owners, at least that I could see. But they're sort of coming in with new ideas into this. We've seen a number of NBA teams change hands in recent years around these similar valuations. We saw Matt Ishbia acquire the Suns, and he's been making some pretty big moves since he did that. Um, I would be surprised if we didn't see kind of similar-ish manoeuvres from the new owners of the Hornets too. Outside of the Hornets, how do you think this news will be received by those within the NBA, um, both as a central organisation and the other member franchises? The thing is, Michael Jordan hasn't been a very good owner of the of the Hornets. In terms of putting a competitive team into action, he's failed quite regularly. I think one of the sort of more worrying things about this is that he's going to be kept on as what we in Europe call the sporting director or head of basketball operations, at least for the upcoming draft. A job that he has like, not had a great deal of success with. They've drafted a lot of players in the top 10 over Jordan's ownership and not really hit on very many of them, which leads to a real shortage of fans in venues. I guess the other notable things about Jordan's tenure were that he changed the name from the Bobcats to the Hornets as part of a re-rebranding effort for the team in Charlotte with the original Charlotte Hornets having moved to New Orleans. So on the basketball court, I think it could be good for the NBA. It may end up with a more competitive team, which actually, while other teams might be sort of slightly fearful of the fact that they might be taking on a better basketball operation, Improved competitiveness is always good for the league. I guess the other thing of note here is that Michael Jordan is the only black majority owner, or was the only black majority owner in the NBA, and now the NBA will look like pretty much every other 
major US sports property with a real shortage of, uh, of black ownership. In the ownership group, I think that is an issue. Like you, you need diversity of thought and diversity of backgrounds. And although Jordan's been a, a multi-billionaire for several years and there's probably a bit of group think when it comes to the multi-billionaires, I think. But Personal experience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he still comes from somewhere different to Gabe Plotkin and Rick Schnell. Yeah, well, it will um, go into the new season. As you say, certainly important ramifications both on and off the court. We'll see how that develops. Mm. Another important development that's taking place this week and a very positive development, um, certainly on the surface, is the Women's World Cup football rights. An agreement has been made between the European Broadcast Group and FIFA. Um, do you want to give us a quick rundown of what's happened there, Tom? Yeah, so, I mean, I, we've talked about this quite a lot on the pod, haven't we? The standoff between FIFA and the major territories, basically, the free-to-air broadcasters that were expected to pick up the rights to the tournament. Uh, FIFA has been seeking, uh, like, a much-enhanced rights fee after splitting the Women's World Cup rights and the general women's football rights out of the men's packages, whereas previously they are all sold together. And over the last week or so, the major European countries, at least, all agreed to pay without being privy to the conversations. I don't know what the starting point was, but the UK rights, which have been split by BBC and ITV, deal said to be worth somewhere between, I mean, reports vary, but but somewhere between 7 and 10 million, which I guess that is quite a large variance, but at the same time, it is said to be an increase on like where they were pitched before within the wider package, but I don't know how much difference that is from the start of the negotiation point to where they are now. In terms of the other deals around Europe, in France, M6 and FTV, again, a mix of commercial and public service broadcasters, have agreed a joint deal, which is said to be worth around 10 million euros. So just a little bit less than that in pounds and dollars. But the picture in the rest of Europe, again, it's that kind of mix of those two. The figures around them are, are kind of sketchy. Originally in Spain, offers were said to have been around 1 million euros in Germany. Again, similar figures. Not the kind of big bucks that you see floating around from the men's tournament yet. While FIFA has taken a stand on this and tried to push up that rights fee, it doesn't seem like they've got much further than where they were at the start of the conversations, which is interesting and probably says that at this stage, I don't think this protracted battle has been particularly good for either party. What you've lost out on is like lead-in time for those broadcasters to build up the hype around the tournament both of us will have sat and watched sporting events on BBC or ITV or anything really and what you won't have seen is any adverts for the Women's World Cup because you're not going to advertise something that you've not got the rights to at that point you don't even know if you're going to be showing it so that applies across all of the major countries in Europe so you've really missed out on that lead time as a tournament from FIFA's perspective in building up that hype and I mean like this starts in less than a month now so we're going to have to have to see a real major push from those broadcasters and bringing in the eyeballs that even like the women's Euros last year, there was a real, really big campaign around that in the UK. And you just haven't seen that yet for the World Cup. Especially when you've got to think that these games are going to be being played at not ideal, not prime time viewing times for Europe. That could be a real issue, I think. You mentioned whether Infantino's stance, a very public stance as well, has worked. He took the fairly unusual step, I'd say, of going to Instagram to essentially announce the crux of the negotiations. Essentially, FIFA's position is that 100% of the fees that were paid would go straight into the women's game in their move towards equal conditions and pay. But really, his main issue with the bids were that the Women's World Cup receives less viewers than the Men's World Cup. 
not surprising at this stage, around 50 to 60% of the viewership numbers, but actually the broadcast valuations are 20 to 100 times lower than that of a FIFA Men's World Cup. So he's saying there's a clear discrepancy between the reach and the commercial interest. He was saying it's around 100 to 200 million for the Men's World Cup per broadcaster, whereas it's between one to 10 million US dollars for the Women's World Cup. Those figures do suggest, as you said, that the eventual figure that's been agreed to isn't far off that which has been quoted or that which was the starting point. How much weight do you hold to his argument that actually, for all the positive conversation there is around women's sports, that broadcasters still aren't putting their money where their mouth is and that they are there's a slight opportunism here being taken that they know these rights had to be sold. They know there was never a situation whereby there was going to be a blackout and broadcasters have already talked about difficult macroeconomic climate and, you know, spiraling rights fees as a reason why they haven't made particularly big bets in this space so far. How much weight do you give to Infantino's argument? I think you have to give it some for sure. The key metric there is 60% of the viewership and 10% of the fee. That says to me that there is opportunism. It also probably suggests that there's a bit of almost lack of expertise from those broadcasters as well. It's just it's not just viewership, is it? A commercial entity like ITV, for example, will buy those rights with the idea that they can sell around them. And the reason that they don't think that they can generate the income that they would be able to from a men's tournament is that they can't sell around them. The other thing I think on viewership is he's probably talking about the main games, right? So like you're talking about ITV showing England games, but there's probably going to be far lower viewership for, say, China versus the Philippines. I, I, don't, I haven't actually looked at the tournament schedule, but like if you get a sort of lower tier matchup like that, the floor for a Men's World Cup game is probably significantly bigger than that 60% gap, I think, for those lower tier games. That's the bit that's probably the challenge, I think, for all of this. So Selective figures in there then probably selected figures from both sides i mean that's the nature of negotiation yeah. right so yeah like i do think there's probably sometimes it can be a bit like moral posturing like the idea that companies have got to behave in a certain way because this is the right thing to do as ever with anything really like it's probably somewhere in the middle and to be honest it looks a little bit like fifa has lost on this one and lost both ways because it's lost as i said that lead-in but it's also not managed to generate the income that it wanted to there's still a couple of um outstanding like uh, major markets for this as well so japan is not sorted yet japan actually a pretty big player in the women's soccer picture strong national team regular knockout um members got players playing all over the world players in wsl players in the nwsl and at the moment as it stands the fifa women's world cup is going to be broadcast pretty much just on fifa plus in japan there's no deal yet in place for that so we're still seeing the brinkmanship game and whether or not that will produce a result there and like if it doesn't to be honest that is to the detriment of the tournament and not really to the detriment of the broadcasters it's interesting this deal has come against the backdrop of some research that's been published by the women's sports trust talking essentially around more general discontent at the way women's sport is broadcast particularly in the uk some stats from that that i found interesting were that 58 percent of committed women's sports fans want more beyond live content 68 percent of those fans want more innovation in the coverage and 61 percent of those fans as well want a dedicated women's sports channel so there's clearly an appetite to do more and not just you know capitalize on temple moments at the last minute and as you say there's a lack of education i think and a lack of appetite to fully invest 
um, in this era that's not just tied to one or two moments in the calendar that are of great importance. Do you think that is representative and this whole negotiation is representative of just two sides that don't fully understand how to make the most of this landscape yet? Uh, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. The other thing is that like, I don't fully understand how to make the most of this land play, as a, even as a commentator and someone that pays particularly close attention to this media landscape. I'd love that if someone listening to the back of this podcast came on and said to me, actually, when you were talking earlier about that 60%, 10% gap and the floor for this game not quite matching the floor for the men's game, you're talking absolute nonsense. This is what it's really like. Like, I think we need that level of expertise and that level of commentary from the industry as well in order to bridge that gap because that is a problem. You don't get that level of expertise and that level of analysis, I don't think, in the public discourse when it comes to some of this stuff. But whether that's sort of internal in the sports industry but also in the broader public reporting as well. I think simplistic comparisons between the men's game and the women's game and just apples and apples doesn't help either no, we've heard I, I, time and time again they're set almost to be treated as separate industries to go back to my point earlier about not knowing how to sell around a women's game like we hear a lot about how the audiences differ and like what those respondents to that women's sports trust study want the people that are giving those answers and the people that are trying to solve the problems there's probably a, there's, there's a huge disconnect between like the mindset behind both of them and the way that you have to approach meeting the needs of those people probably isn't currently within the skill set of the people that are being charged to do the job now like that's not to say that those people working in those sales teams are bad at their jobs or don't know how to do it it's just that there isn't that isn't that level of expertise or precedent yeah exactly there's there's been no precedent for it well the tournament is gathering momentum we hope ticket sales have surpassed one million now which would make it the most attended edition ever and there is still plenty of room for growth there i know that the original target is 1.5 million so let's hope that the wave of interest and the vote of confidence from an attendance point of view is matched matched in the broadcast sector yeah for sure well tom let's talk about a women's sports property that is in a bit more financial strife. Very unfortunate news this week that the, the W Series has entered into administration after three seasons. Can you give me a, a bit of a precy of how that journey's looked? Yeah, so the W Series launched like with a kind of really positive message, positive outlook as well, actually, when it first came out. They snapped up sponsors. There was interest from other brands in getting involved. They got an all-female racing series off the ground in 2019. Like, that in itself should be celebrated. And actually, that's kind of some of the stuff that's come out of this, is that the W Series did a job in terms of setting the ground for that to happen. I think really what did for the W Series, and ultimately it's something that's completely out of their hands, was the pandemic. Like, of course, it was going to be those support series, those junior series that whatever it is that like the the bigger organizations are able to fall back on and and like broadcast rights for sure they just didn't have that and i mean catherine von muir the ceo and founder of the w series talked about the fact that whilst they were able to race the fact that they weren't able to get people and most importantly people with money and deep pockets to those races meant that they weren't able to pitch in the same way that they would have been able to had they been less restrictions so even down to that like operational level the physical thing of getting people into a place to talk to them they weren't able to do they've been searching for investment for a little while they've had to cancel their 2022 season three races early because of financial difficulties and now like it wasn't i think at that point the writing was on the wall and it's a real shame but there are definitely some positives that come out of it not least the launch of the f1 academy which is now another all-female junior racing series which 
sits on the support network for Formula One. So, do you think there's a bit of PR spin there when it comes to not being able to have investors physically present at races? Catherine Bonmieux's comments really did emphasise that point that the physical restrictions that the pandemic brought really did impact the opportunity to attract investment and that investment didn't come. And how much do you think that's actually true? Having people physically through the door is the strongest indicator of whether or not an investment deal goes through, which is probably a bit of a no simplification, but... No, I mean, no, here's, here's a really interesting example, right? So the Miami Grand Prix this year saw three people attend who everyone's heard of. George Brewer, Tom Basson. <laughs> yeah, next year, Paddock Club, please. Um, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and Bernard Arnault, the three richest people in the world. They were at the Miami Grand Prix Paddock Club and like through various different guises and various different parts of their businesses, they have relations with F1. So whether or not that's directly with like Jeff Bezos, obviously founder of Amazon, AWS has a massive partnership with Formula One. Elon Musk works in the automotive industry as much as you like to think of him as the owner of Twitter and this tech billionaire. Ultimately, he sells cars. Bernard Arnault obviously works in fashion, but they've got there's major tie-ups there between his his business his businesses and some of the drivers. Like those are the kind of influential people that you can get to a race, and actually having them in the building gets them to see what they can do. You have those conversations. Like, there's a reason why that's important. So for the W Series, I do think that's a major thing. Like I think if you take anyone to an event and you show it off to them in the right way, if they're the kind of investor that's like minded to put their money into it, which I think people that would have gone to that series would have been. I mean, you, like Lewis Hamilton was talking about this a couple of days ago. He's got like, a bit of regret the fact that he didn't spend more time engaging with W Series because he said when he did, it was great. He hasn't quite got the capital to make a difference when it comes to keeping that show on the road. He may have been able to chuck in a few million, but that probably isn't going to do the job. But I think that just goes to show that is actually really important and shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, you mentioned Lewis Hamilton there, another business that had some criticism leveled at it for not supporting the W Series as much as it could do as Formula One itself. Mm. When the races were cancelled at the end of last year, the news came out fairly swiftly afterwards that the F1 Academy was being set up, fronted by Susie Wolf. Is there an element of a bit of a, no pun intended here, but a wolf in sheep's clothing there, essentially swooping in a series that's in strife and allowing itself to carve out a proposition with very little competition with a bit of a free runway. I think there's I think there's certainly a bit of that. I mean I doubt it's probably quite as calculated as F one conspiracy theorists on Twitter will have you believe. But there's not going to be the level of investment is there, like financially or in any way, if you know you've got another option and if that other option is within your family, so to speak. I think probably it's a bit like when UEFA launched its own under nineteens youth Champions League in a direct reaction to what was a very popular and actually quite successful intercontinental club youth tournament called the Next Gen Tournament, which was actually organised outside of UEFA. But UEFA basically launched its own one, replaced it with a actually what is not such a good product when it comes to the development of uh, junior players. But it meant it came under UEFA's control and they were able to bundle it into their TV rights packages and it pleased their clubs a lot more. And this is kind of the racing version of that process. I don't think it's a surprise that there's been no sort of outreach from F1 to make the W Series work and to bring it on board. I wouldn't say they're happy, but they're probably slightly less concerned than they would have been. I think that you should look at F1 Academy, if you want to spin positive on it, it took something else to make F1 do that and take it seriously and launch something that offers that pathway that the W Series was set up to meet. As you say, there's a big difference between not stepping in and save something because you're developing it 
seeing the opportunity that exists on the back of it. Yeah, I mean, with the F1 Academy hasn't is like it's not without its own problems, right? There was that whole stuff about the fact that live broadcast isn't even going to be featured in F1 TV because they haven't sorted out the logistics of making that happen. Like that seems not great in terms of you've launched this series to promote and raise up women in motorsport, but you're not even actually going to find a way to broadcast it on your own OTT platform live. So yeah, it's kind of still mixed messaging, I think, from F1 on it. It needs, I mean, probably as it matures, it will it will be fine and it will develop in the way that they want it to. But what we sort of said with the Women's World Cup broadcast, right, still, it seems mad to me, but it's still a thing that we're talking about, the development stage of women's sports properties and how you get past that. In 2023, that really shouldn't have to be a conversation. Mm. Agreed, agreed. Well, um, I know in the interest of time, I'll, I'll move you on to the final topic I wanted to pick your brains on, Tom, before I lose you for the rest of the week. And that is Chelsea Football Club. Bit of a, a turbulent year on and off the pitch. And the last few days have been really no different. A little bit of sort of chaos and mixed strategy going on. But Stake.com have been chosen to replace uh, three as Chelsea's new front of shirt sponsor. The eagle-eared among you will know that State.com is slightly in contrary to the Premier League self-imposed front-of-shirt betting sponsor ban. But given that this is a one-year contract, that still stays within the remit of those laws, but uh, almost certainly against the spirit of them. Basically, it sounds like State.com were the biggest offer on the table for Chelsea. There was reports of interest in a deal with Allianz, but Allianz wanted to pay them around half what three, who is their previous sponsor, was paying the club. I think they were getting around 40 million a year. Allianz were not prepared to pay that for a team that's not in the Champions League and not in any European competition next season. Fist pumps all around to the Sports Pro podcast studio right there. <laughs> but but stake.com were. And like that's kind of typical of the narrative really around gambling brands in football generally is that they will always pay more than anyone else. And clubs will take that because they need it. But usually what's happened is that the sort of big six clubs haven't had to stoop to the level, shall we say, of bringing a gambling brand onto their front of shirt. It probably says a lot about Chelsea's commercial position and how they've been run over the past year since the Bowley takeover that they've had to do this kind of deal. There was also an interesting wrinkle in this that they were about to agree a shirt sponsor with Paramount Plus, the streaming platform owned by Paramount Global. But Premier League's broadcast rights agreements basically mean that there's no you cannot provide marketing for a potential rival which paramount is in other markets it shows sport in the uk it doesn't but in other markets it does so that that wasn't going to happen did see the premier league uh, really enforcing its rules there as it so often does (laughs) he says with quite a lot of tongue in cheek (laughs) yeah it does seem like one of those that kind of uh it's pick and choose which ones you like when it comes to those regulations but for chelsea i mean it this is a bit of a mess. Their fans aren't very happy about it. They've expressed their overwhelming opposition in an open letter to the club. And you can kind of understand why. Like the, the narrative around betting brands in sponsorship in the UK, at least, has been fairly negative for the last few seasons. Obviously, you've got the ban coming in, which doesn't suggest a lot of long-term thinking or long-term strategy when it comes to these kind of commercial partnerships in the club. But I guess from Chelsea's perspective, they just needed to get the money in like they're, they're, they're currently at the moment of flogging half of their team to Saudi Arabia in order to meet FFP regulations so times are tough at Chelsea right now and this is probably a reflection of that I mean we should think about some of the issues that they've had off the pitch not just related to the team 
So since Clear Lake came in, there was a new president of business who was appointed. That was Tom Glick, who came from the NFL, but previously worked for City Football Group. Damien Willoughby was forced to step away over the emergence of some messages of a sexual nature to a colleague, which obviously is completely inappropriate from someone in his position. And Chris Eurosec, who's a bit of a, a Clear Lake loyalist and favourite, um, has come in. So it's not been the most settled environment in the Chelsea Capital Department over the last 12 months or so. So maybe this kind of scrambling around shouldn't be too much of a surprise. But it still looks a little bit grubby from a team which when they were acquired, was uh, pitched as this blue chip, big hitting club. You don't buy a club for that much money if you don't think you can make a mint out of it. And ever since then, Tom Bailey's basically been giving a clinic in how not to run a football team. And long may it continue from my <laughs> purely selfish Arsenal <laughs> fan point of view. But uh, also it does provide some rich talking points for oh, this yeah, podcast. It's, it's great for content. <laughs> well, Tom, thank you very much for covering some of this week's stories. I will say goodbye to you now as you head off to Glastonbury. And in the words of Elton John, I think it's going to be a long, long time. <laughs> Thanks, George. Um, Touchdown will bring me home again. <laughs>